8 and 9. The book of Jude is only 25 verses in length, one of the shortest books in all the Bible. We've been trying to study it this month of June, June and Jude, and Jude and June, right? So we're going to try and figure it out. If I mess up halfway through, if I say June instead of Jude, you'll kind of know what I'm talking about, okay? But uh, we're just going to look at verses 8 and 9 this morning. And if you carried in a book of the Bible this morning, Scripture, You'll understand, I hope you understand, that is the number one best-selling book of all time. No one has ever come close by billions of copies. The Bible is the number one best-selling book of all time. Um, when you crawl inside this book, you discover the world where supernatural things exist and where miracles happen. And I, I enjoy reading. I don't know how many of you enjoy reading. I, liked, I started liking reading when they stopped telling me I had to. Um, usually when I had to write book reports or I had to read this book or that book, no thanks, but no thanks. But once I got to pick for myself, right, I, I, I love to read. Um, I always loved the, uh, the Narnia Chronicles from C.S. Lewis when I was a kid. I'm waiting for my son to get old enough. He needs some more pictures right now than he does words. So we're getting close, um, uh, things like that, or, uh, you know, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, these, these epic chronicles that spanning over volume after volume and the Bible, you, you enter into scripture and you enter this world that is very similar where miracles happen and the supernatural exists and the, you enter this world where human beings are weighed down because of our sin and where the creator embarks on a rescue mission to redeem the world that he made that rebelled against him back to himself so in summary in the next 30 minutes i think it would be a sin for me to make this book boring okay and these two verses are a little bit strange okay these two verses are a little bit cumbersome but this book, this Bible is anything but boring. It is anything but uh, uninteresting, okay? Un it might be unbelievable to some, and a lot in our world it's not believable, but I don't think you can say it's boring. If you say it's boring, you haven't read it, okay? There's so much in here. There's such an incredible uh, story here. And the story of the Bible is like a football game, okay? So maybe if you're new to our church, this is a great Sunday to start, to kind of lay a foundation of why we are people of this book. Uh, this book is kind of like a football game. There's a first half and a second half. The first half, the opening narrative, explains how these people called the Jews popped up on planet Earth and how they failed to fulfill their mission, okay? They, uh, the first half is this tug of war between Israel and God. The Jews make it this on-again, off-again relationship, kind of like a, a college-age boy trying to figure out if that girl's the one, right? We're dating this week. We're not dating next week. We like her now. We're not sure if we like her next week, right? It's kind of that on-again, off-again kind of thing, and Israel's not sure if, he, if the nation wants to do what's right, if it wants to be, make a God their God, or if they want to continue to go their way. Ultimately, they reject him, and they are bound in this religious system by the end of the Old Testament. In the second half, the New Testament, we read the story of Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the Messiah the Old Testament had prophesied about. We learn who Jesus was. We learn his claims of who he said he was, and we would see his accomplishments. The number one accomplishment, obviously, he went into a grave, and three days later, he got back up, okay? Once somebody does that, you got to listen to what they say. Right? He, he goes into a tomb. Three days later, he comes out, and he is the single most influential person in the history of our world, and he's not that because I said he is. If you don't believe me, Time Magazine, just a couple years ago, voted Jesus as the single most influential person that has ever walked this planet. He changed the world. He set a fire that is still burning in hearts in Torrington, Connecticut, 2,000 years later. Jesus made that difference. This month, we've been studying the New Testament book of Jude. And today's text is a little bit confusing because Jude is going to quote from a source 
that isn't included in our Bible. Okay, he's he's going to quote a source to the people he's writing to try and illustrate what he's trying to teach them about the danger of false teachers. And he's going to quote from a source from something called The Assumption of Moses. This is a book that uh, kind of arose in the years after Israel was, um, uh, kind of the years between Israel or the Old Testament and New Testament. We wouldn't even have a complete copy of this book at this point. So why, the question we have and that prompts in my mind is this. What did Jude think about that book? Did Jude think that that book should have been in the Bible? Is that book supposed to be in the Bible? And then that prompts questions like, well, how do we know what books are supposed to be in the Bible? Right? Like, how do we know this book is okay and this book is wrong? And it starts to prompt some questions in our mind. So what I'm going to do this morning is for about 15 minutes, I'm going to chase a holy rabbit trail, okay? And we're just going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what makes this book different than every other religious book, why the books we have in the Bible are accepted versus others' books being rejected. And so we're going to do that and then try our best in the last 10 or 15 minutes to understand what verses 8 and 9 mean, okay? So let's start with reading them, okay? Jude, verse 8. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers, he's talking about the false teachers that were turning uh, Christian liberty into Christian license, saying, once you've met Jesus, you can do whatever you want, okay? It says, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, they despise dominion, they speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Amen? Well, that's good stuff right there, huh? Like two guys fighting over the body of a dead guy, right? Like, what does this have to do with me? I doubt any of you have this crocheted on a pillow sitting on your couch. Like, Jude 9 is not something we put on a sign over our mantles about Michael, the archangel, and the devil fighting over the body of Moses. So what is this about, okay? I want you to imagine that I've got in front of you, I should have brought it, all of the chronicles of uh, the Lord, Lord of the Rings, right? All of the different you know, novels that go into that series. And I want you to imagine that I blindly opened it up and pointed in the middle of it. You had no idea who these people are. You've never heard of Mordor, okay? You've never heard of these characters. You don't know who Bilbo Baggins is from Michael Jordan, okay? You have no idea who these guys are. And you, I point to random two lines and I read them to you. You're not gonna know what in the world I'm talking about, Right? I'll summarize it for you. Two guys walk for a long time and drop a ring in fire. But uh, ultimately, right, these two lines, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know who these characters are. I don't know what's going on. Sometimes Christians, even new Christians, we, we just plop it open and we point to something like, man, why, is, why isn't God speaking to me? Like, what, 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 how, how come? Can you imagine like being in, being in a hotel room somewhere, really searching for truth, and you pray that God will, you know, do something, or you, you just plop open a Gideon's Bible there and it goes to Jude 9? What is he telling me to do, right? Well, what is Jude 9 supposed to mean for me? This is why some of us are tempted to check out when we get to verses in the Bible that we don't understand. We get to verses and we just, we just can't grasp it, so we're just, we're out, right? Jude, we started like, man, I urge you to contend for the faith. Yes, amen, right? I, I, I want you to reject those who are teaching these false things that are trying to infiltrate the church. Yes, amen, we agree with that. Just like Michael did when he fought the devil for the body of Moses, Amen, right? Like we, we don't quite know how to respond to that. It, it doesn't have the quite the same punch, right? You lost me a little bit when we get into the passages like that. Some scripture is self-evident and some of it needs a little bit of explanation, okay? Most of it, you can open up yourself at home, read it and understand it and God can speak to you. There's gonna occasionally be some passages in here that you might need some help, 
okay? It's like for those of you guys who like to exercise, you go to the gym, you can lift a lot of weights by yourself, but eventually you're going to get to a point where you need somebody to spot for you, right? You need somebody to come alongside of you and, and help you. And my goal this morning is to kind of be that spot, okay? To try and help us to understand these passages. And uh, what I want to do is kind of answer first three or four of the main questions I've been asked as a pastor in educated New England, okay, about scripture, about the Bible, and endeavor to answer those for you. I'm going I'm to put these under the header in your outline, what we're, call, what we're going to call the canon of scripture, okay? The canon of scripture. Now, if you hear that word, most of us think gun on a ship, right? Like Pirates of the Caribbean shooting cannonballs at each other. That's what we think of when we hear canon, right? The cannonballs flying out. The word canon just means in Greek, uh, stick or measuring stick, okay? When you talk about the canon of scripture, what you're talking about are the books of the Bible that met the measuring stick or the standard to be included in this book, okay? There are books that were written that did not meet this standard. There are books that were written that claim to be scripture that we believe as Christians do not meet the standards God has set forth to be included in his holy word. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. That prompts the question of which one of those books fits that category, right? Which books are God-breathed? Which books are inspired? I think probably before we jump in, some history of the Bible is probably warranted for us. The books that the early church considered God-breathed became part of what's called the canon of Scripture, which is what you hold in your laps this morning, okay? This combination of 66 books that they said met the standards to be included. So how did they get there? Well, let's take the Old Testament first. Okay, The Old Testament is much easier to defend than sometimes the New Testament is. There's a whole lot less disagreement about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is 39 books. Why is it easier to say the Old Testament should be in the Bible? Because Jesus himself, who we say is the Messiah, quoted over and over and over and over again from the Old Testament saying, I'm quoting from scripture. So he affirmed it himself. He was the the Messiah who's now quoting back. And if we are followers of Jesus, we have, no, we have no issue at all with him claiming that the Old Testament is true. You, you look at stories like Jonah. And there are people who would tell you, well, Jonah can't be real because you can't live in the belly of a fish for three days, right? But if Jesus comes and he goes into the belly of the earth for three days and comes back out and he says that Jonah really happened and I'm the greater Jonah, the second coming of Jonah, I am the fulfillment of Jonah, then it's much less difficult for me to believe that Jesus, the guy was in a fish for three days than the guy that was dead and came back to life, okay? So if Jesus resurrected and he said that really happened, I'm gonna take his word for it, right? This is all real. This is all took place. This is not symbolism. So when it comes to 39 books of the Old Testament, the early church just accepted these books as signed, sealed, delivered because Jesus did as well, okay? The New Testament is much trickier, okay? The New Testament is trickier because it was written and composed after Jesus ascended, right? The majority of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul after Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Then he, we don't have physical Jesus here to confirm them for us. So how do we canonize the New Testament? There's a lot of controversy about this, and many of you might have been in this room. A, a majority of people in our region were raised in kind of the Catholic tradition. The Catholic Church, if you open a Catholic Bible, they're gonna have seven books in there that the Bible sitting in front of you will not have, okay? It's called the Apocrypha. Okay, the Apocrypha. So that's our first question that I get asked is, what about the Apocrypha? Okay, what about the Apocrypha? Why isn't that in our Bible? And why is it in other people's Bibles? The word Apocrypha means secret or hidden, which is kind of a uh, false advertising because it's neither secret nor hidden. Okay, it's there, obvious for anyone to be able to find. 
I don't know if you uh, have noticed this about our culture, but anytime that anything is hidden or secretive, it draws our attention to it. Like, ooh, I want to know. Like, I, I got I to gotta figure that out. This is a conspiracy of some kind. I've got I've to dive beneath the surface. We're, we as 21st century Americans are drawn to that stuff. I mean, we eat that stuff for lunch. Like, this, this is hidden. I can dive. This is, this is on the 14th page of Google. Like, I've got to dive into this, right? I've got to figure this out. So when you, you, you brand something as hidden or secretive and all of a sudden people are interested in, that's why we tolerate Nicolas Cage's bad acting in order to find national treasure, right? Because I got to figure out what's going on. And Nicolas Cage is a national icon. You won't convince me of anything else, okay? But the seven books of the Apocrypha are not hidden books. They're just B minus books, okay? Um, if, you, if you study the English language, if you study literature, the Bible is an incredibly written book. And then you'll find these seven books of the Apocrypha just don't, they don't measure up. Um, they're not as well written. Jesus nor the apostles ever quote from these seven books. They never, they never, there's no quote from them in any of these other, in Paul's writings. Paul was quoting secular philosophers, but he didn't quote the Apocrypha. Okay, so he rejected it. And the Catholic Church themselves didn't even add them to their Bibles until the mid-1500s. Now, church history lesson, what happened in the 1500s? A little thing called the Protestant Reformation. Okay, at that point, um, our main guy, Martin Luther, all right, the hero of ours, ours, right? Martin Luther shows up in the scene, and the Catholic Church started teaching something called indulgences, that if you gave money, that you could buy a person back from purgatory, okay? That if you threw money in a plate, that there's, a, there's this spiritual jail that people are being held, and then once you gave money, that those people could be released. They even had a jingle, okay? They marketed it. You want to hear the jingle? I know you do. All right, here's the jingle. Um, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That's 15th, 15th century marketing right there, I guess. But um, you know that Martin Luther hears this, that, he, that they're starting to say that people can buy people's salvation with financial means, and it I mean, infuriates him. I mean, that, that's the opposite of what Scripture teaches us, right? That's the opposite of by grace through faith. So he discovers and begins to teach against that. He eventually culminates in him marching one day to the church and nailing to the door what's called the 95 Theses. Okay, it's a protest document. Giving, that gave rise to Protestantism, that gave rise to the majority of Christian denominations that we now are friends with today, and the freedom for you to interpret the scriptures for yourself. Many of you maybe that grew up in a Catholic church knew that the priest would read in Latin or read another language that you never, you never really could read this for yourself. Martin Luther said, and we, we affirmed this morning, you, everything that I say, you should take home and check and make sure it's in this book. Right, that we, this is our filter, that this is our authority, this is what we have, that you have the right to interpret it as an individual Christian, that you have the, what's called the priesthood of the believer, that you are, can be spoken to from by yourself. Right? You don't need to go through someone else to hear from God. He actually translated the Bible to German, and when he did, he removed the apocryphal books and put them in kind of like a, what's it called, the end of it, like an appendix, right? where you put it at the end. He kind of added them in the air at the end, just saying that these were also written, but were not written the same way, nor inspired, and eventually over time, 500 years later, we leave them out of the appendix, okay, just because they're, they're not held to the same standard as the, um, the rest of the Bible is. And you say, well, why would the Catholics include them? Because in 2 Maccabees is the only passage in the Apocrypha, or in the whole Bible, that gives some sort of feeling that there might be this purgatory place, and I don't even think it says it in there. Like, if you read it I can interpret it very differently. But that's the one they would go to to prove the reality of, of why they need indulgences and why they need people to be able to give to be able to purchase those souls. So they canonized it and added it into their Bible 
to be able to receive those. Okay, I'm reporting here. I'm not trying to deride anybody or insult anybody, but we, I've been asked that more times than I can count. Why don't we have these books that my Bible that I got in the Catholic Church has? And the reason is that we reject that those are written by God. We reject that those are inspired by God. Now, is there good, interesting stories in there? For sure. Like, there's some good, interesting stories in there, but they're not scripture, okay? Uh, they don't hold to the same standard or the law as the rest of it. Speaking of hidden books, the next one of the more, next more common questions I receive is, what, not about with Apocrypha, what about the Da Vinci Code, right? What about the Da Vinci Code? And if you're under the age of 25, you said, what? Like, that, you probably, uh, that's probably post your time. But um, the Da Vinci Code was this book that came out in 2003 and was, like, shot up the bestseller list. It was number one for a while. Like, everyone was reading this book. It's this, uh, this mystery detective book um, that caused thousands of people to begin to question the legitimacy of faith, to begin to, to begin to question the legitimacy of Scripture. And it's not the first conspiracy book like this, and it won't be the last conspiracy book like this. So if you're under the age of 25, you don't know what I'm talking about, know that another one's going to come out in a few years. They just keep coming. Um, but as they keep coming, the Bible keeps standing, uh, and it's still there, and it's still rejecting all of these things. But um, when I was a teenager, I think I was 16 years old, one of the first faraway trips I was able to go with my friends, we went to an Atlanta Braves game. That was about four hours from where I grew up, just south of Nashville. We went to an Atlanta Braves game. Um, I had my ticket, and my parents gave me 20 bucks. Okay, You can tell this is a while ago where 20 bucks could actually buy you something at a baseball game. Um, so $20 I had on my way. And this is a time, this is early 2000s, so they were, like chains were kind of cool at that point. Um, gold chains, and you can judge me, but I was cool, all right? So um, I can remember, this was kind of like the, the end thing to wear chains and necklaces. And uh, we walked into the stadium, this guy had his trunk popped, and he had all sorts of gold chains. And they were looked awesome, right? They looked nice, and I walked over, and he said, 24 karat gold. And I looked at it, and there was a little 24K etched into these necklaces. I said, how much? 20 bucks. Well, the Lord's provided. I have $20, right? I have 20 bucks just for this occasion, right? This is not a deal. This is a steal, right? I've got, I've got to take this opportunity. And so I bought the chain, 20 bucks. On the ride home, that chain broke. And then we discovered shortly after, as my buddies made fun of me, that the 24 karat looks like it was in, like, etched in there with like a screwdriver. Like, and I, for the first moment, that was the first moment in my life where I, I got ripped off. And I was mad. You ever had that feeling where you, got, you just got took? Like, that, that guy, like that salesman or that, that used car guy or that electrician, or I just got, I got taken on this, right? And you know what I'm doing from there on out? I assume every gold necklace I see almost to this day, not real. It's fake. Why? Because I got took. So that means everybody else has to be getting taken too, right? Here's the deal. There really is such a thing as a 24 karat necklace. Some of you maybe are wearing them today. Not as cool as mine was vintage 2004, but um, they're real. The fact that counterfeits exist does not negate that real ones exist. Here is the problem with things like the Da Vinci Code, okay? That book was placed in the fiction section for a reason. It's not real. It's not real. It's fiction. Dan Brown made it up and made a killing off of it, okay? But it's not real. But because people love hidden stuff and people love the conspiracy, they read the novel and assumed that because that book said that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, Jesus had to be married to Mary Magdalene. Because that book said that the, uh, the early church fathers were all charlatans, that, that means the early church fathers were all charlatans because this fiction book told me so. So now it really led to, sadly and almost 
in a silly way, thousands of people leaving churches because they bought into this thing as if it was true, as if it was real. I mean, it's a page turner. It's probably a good book. I haven't read it all the way through, but it, it, it's not real. It's fictional. It, it does not negate scripture. Here's what I want to speak to. Not so much that I think we have a bunch of Da Vinci Code people out here, okay? What I want to speak to is why did that book hit such a nerve? Why did that book bring out so much response? Why, why did so many millions of people buy it? Because my generation, this generation, rejects religious authority. We reject the idea of absolute truth. We, we want nothing to do with that as a culture. We want nothing to do with that as a generation. The Da Vinci Code says the early church fathers were all fakes and frauds. The whole thing was a scam. So they're buying right into that, right? The Da Vinci Code has been proven over and over and over again to have no historical footing, which is why most of you under the age of 20 have never heard of it, right? But your generation will have its version. And 20 years after that, it'll be on sale for a dollar at Goodwill. And Bibles will still be being sold like by the billions, okay? It still stands. So what about the Apocrypha? Well, those were added later on to, to the, the Catholic Scriptures as an attempt to be able to legitimize purgatory. What about uh, the Da Vinci Code? It's a, I mean, all of these things just spew nonsense and false accusations, and it's fiction. Let me ask you this question. How do we know that God isn't still writing books? Okay, it's the third question here. How do we know that God isn't still recording new books? I don't know how I said that. How do we know that God raised? Oh, pretty close. How do we know that God isn't giving more books? I couldn't remember how I put it in your outline. This is a very, very good question. I think, of, I think it's an intelligent question. Because if you think about it, the Jews in the Old Testament did not know there was going to be a New Testament. They weren't like going through the, the sacrificial systems thinking, oh man, I can't wait till we don't have to do this anymore. I can't wait till this is over. I can't wait till we can finally, you know, be out of the bonds of the law where we can finally eat shrimp. I can't wait till I can wear that polyester suit I've been having in the closet, right? I can't wait till all these rules are gone. Now, they had no idea that the New Testament was coming. They had no idea that all of this was going to be put to side. They, they had no idea that one day God was going to update the program. That's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus shows up, and if you remember, the last night before he dies, he has dinner with his disciples. They celebrate the Passover meal. What does Jesus say? Hey, I'm forever changing this. We're not going to celebrate the Exodus where we were delivered from Israel, from Egypt anymore. From now on, when we take this meal, we're going to celebrate the new Exodus, the greater Exodus, the escape from death by way of the cross. Jesus says, this is what? This is the New Testament. This is the new covenant in my blood. From here on out, I'm revolutionizing this whole thing. I'm starting something. This is the New Testament. Now, in 1820, there's a guy walking around the woods in western New York named Joseph Smith, Okay. And he gets a vision from God. God comes down, Jesus comes down and gives him some gold tables and says that I am going to give you a new New Testament. And he writes it all down. He says, every other church on earth is corrupt except for this one true church. And that is where the Book of Mormon comes from. This guy walking around the woods in 1820 where God shows up and gives him this message on tablets, okay? God's gonna start this whole thing over. Just like he did with Noah, he's gonna start over with Joseph Smith right? We have this whole new revolution, a whole new real church. We have an Old Testament, a New Testament. If you meet a, a Mormon, if you have a Mormon in your family, they have Old Testament and New Testament, and then they have a new New Testament, right? They have another Testament. This final version comes out carrying the ultimate authority, even though it over and over again, you know, contradicts with the first two, but this book tells the story of how ancient Jews crossed the ocean, landed in America, and how Jesus appeared to them and gave them the, 
news that he's been hiding from the rest of us, okay? That's what's in the Book of Mormon. And someone asked, and I think it's a fair question, how can we say that that didn't really happen? How can we say that Joseph Smith is delusional? How can we say that that's not a real book, but we can state that ours is? Are we just that much smarter than everybody else? Right, is everyone that describes that worldview system, are they just dummies believing this stuff? Or how do we know that our book is the real one? What if he's telling the truth? Well, let's rewind the tape and another 230 years before that to a cave in Mecca on the other side of the world where a guy named Muhammad gets a vision. In this cave, Muhammad reports that the archangel Gabriel, the same Gabriel that delivers the news of Mary's birth, shows up to him and gives him the rest of the story. And he records it in what's called the Quran. Recording there in Mecca, Muhammad says Gabriel fills in the missing blanks of all of salvation for him. He updates the Bible with all of these new things that Jesus Christ was really a Muslim. And because he was a servant of Allah and he was a prophet following before or leading before Muhammad would come. If you actually read the Quran in uh, chapter three of the Quran, it says, behold, the angel said, O Mary, Allah giveth thee glad tidings. His name will be Christ Jesus. He'll be the son of Mary held in honor. They don't reject that Jesus lived. They just said that he was a forerunner to Muhammad and that Jesus was a prophet, just not the prophet, right? If Jesus was the king in the cards, Muhammad's the ace, right? That's what they would hold to. In chapter one of the Quran, it holds the holy prayer, which if you, if you have Muslim friends, they pray every single day, five times a day. And in that prayer that they recite, it says this, in the name of God, Allah, most gracious, most merciful, this is the book and its guidance without doubt. What are they saying? Our worldview, the Islamic worldview, rests in the reliability of the Quran. The Mormon worldview and their faith rests on the reliability of Joseph Smith's text of the Book of Mormon. And Christians, our faith, our worldview relies on the reliability of God's word. So how do we know that God hasn't given other people other words? It's no wonder why Charles Darwin has become so popular and his book. He, he uh, at least in science, a person is dealing with facts, right? That if a man really did believe himself to be God incarnate, that's foolishness. The apostles did allow their flesh to be set on fire because they so believed in the resurrection. If Jesus rising from the dead was a carefully planned conspiracy, a well-covered-up scam, then by all means... Um, let's get our shovels and go find the missing link that Darwin talked about because that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I don't, I'm not going to be burned alive for a, for a lie. But if, in fact, Jesus appeared in history, his life, his death, his resurrection was chronicled more carefully than any other things that we regard as fact. If the worldview Jesus presents produces human life and human flourishing and joy and success and freedom beyond every other religious belief system, then maybe perhaps... As a culture, we should leave the door open that something supernatural happens with this book. Something supernatural happens here. On top of the historical facts of the resurrection, which I think is obviously proven, when one reads the New Testament, there seems to be this power inside of it. That not just is the scripture proven to be real by historical fact, but it's proven to be real. It's, it's self-authenticating. The more you read it, the more you dive into it, you realize my life is changing. My life has now purpose. My life has now, uh, it, it's, it's turned cultures, societies, and families completely upside down. The Bible changes people, just like it changed Saul to Paul. When I read like 
when I read Paul, who was a Jew of Jews, a man who begins his life banking on the rules, doing everything he's supposed to do, one who believes he had found the secret to life in legalism and rule keeping, and then one day he meets Jesus Christ. From that moment on, his soul is swallowed up, not by rule keeping, but by grace. Read his writings, he's just completely encapsulated by the idea of grace, and he runs as far as he can away from works righteousness and unto Christ, and it makes the human heart free. It makes us run. It gives us the ability to pursue God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. We are what we are. Our church is what our church is, not by earning perfect scores on a prayer mat, or not by entering a temple in Salt Lake City, or not by taking a, a pilgrimage to some place in the world. No, we our life has significance because of who God is and what he has taught us. Well, how can a person know the Bible is true and all these other books are false? Here's the first step. Read them. Read them. See for yourself. I think you will see that the story contained in this book requires far less faith than these others. The Bible is confirmed by history. The Bible is confirmed by the human heart. And the Bible, it just makes logical, complete, total sense to the human mind. How God created the cosmos, how the whole thing fell apart because of our sin, and how he is the one who is now entering into our world to redeem it. Even Peter confessed that there are a few things Paul wrote that just confounded him. So yet we believe it makes sense, but let me ask this last question, then I'll move on to the text, okay? This last question. What do we do with passages that we don't understand, like Jude 8 and 9? What do we do when we come to texts that are hard to grasp, hard to understand? Let's look at verse number nine. Why, why does Jude refer to a story that's not contained in the Bible? Verse nine, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, did not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Okay, what is going on here? This is the same passage where Jude is telling the churches to be on guard against false teachers who are sneaking into their church and trying to convince people to um, live however they want to live. Surprise, surprise, it's leaning towards sensuality and lasciviousness, okay? Well, we can do whatever we want, right, because we're now under grace. So Jude is making the point that these false teachers have no respect for authority. They have no reverence for God. They have no interest in following after God. So to illustrate that, Jude points to this story about Moses' death. In Deuteronomy 34, when Moses dies, God basically takes the body of Moses and he's buried somewhere that no one else knows. Um, this, this is just in Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. Um, no one knows where his grave is. As history unfolded, according to the book of the Assumption of Moses, that there's this story where Michael the archangel is defending the body of Moses against Satan who's come to attack him. And when he defends the body of Moses, he does not rebuke Satan himself. Verse 9, 9 says, he did not bring against him accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke thee, Right? He leans on the authority of God the Father to reject and to um, rebuke Satan, okay? Now, unfortunately, we can't ask Jude why out of all the stories to illustrate submission to authority, he chose to use the oddest one that we could think of. Like, why, why would he choose to use this illustration? We can't ask him this. But I want to submit that to be a Christian, <coughs> excuse me, we have to admit that there will be some things in Scripture that we will not understand this side of eternity. There will be some things in this book that we just, we never completely know. 
I mean, how many times have we been asked, what about the wheel within the wheel within Ezekiel? And I'll say, yeah, cool. Yeah. I know that John 3 tells me Jesus really loves me, right? Uh, this, is, this is what I can grasp. This is what I can understand. There's going to be some things in here that there's probably a long line around Jesus for all of you guys that really want to know this stuff, and maybe he'll let you ask it. He'll probably just say, there's more important things to worry about right now than the wheel within the wheel, but uh, you can ask your questions there. There's going to be parts of things in this world that we just don't understand. Even when Jesus was leaving, he told his disciples, guys, I've got a lot more to teach you. <laughs> and he says this with graciousness. You can't handle it. He says, you, you won't be able to bear it if I give you the full truckload of information, okay? I'm looking at some of your faces right now after the truckload of information I've just dropped, and you look like you're about to take a nap. So like, you know, like you, Jesus says, I've got more to give you, and you're going to have to wait for the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit's going to come and develop these things. Much more happened than has been recorded. The Bible does not have some blanks. The Bible does kind of leave some blanks for us to be filled in later as we grow and as we develop, but don't throw out the 98% of Scripture that you read and understand the 2% that confuses you, okay? Usually, it's the part that we do understand that we don't like. Oh, man, I am kind of judgmental, and I am arrogant, and I'm not that loving, and I'm sure not patient, but there's some weird verses in here, so I'm going to reject the whole thing, right? Because there's some really weird stuff in there, too. It's the part that we understand that really gets us in trouble. Jude is challenging this church in a way they understood we just aren't living in first century Israel where we're going to know the story from the assumption of Moses at the same level that they would have, okay? This might have been for them, them comparing it to, I don't know, an election or a president or all these things that we kind of can commonly lingo about. For them, it made sense. For us, we've got to kind of work through it, okay? What I want to do is kind of close with this thought. Andrew, why should we take the Bible seriously? Why should we take the Bible seriously? Maybe you're here and you're a new Christian, maybe you're here and you're still figuring this thing out. Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time, okay? But maybe you think you've grown past this book. I want to give you four reasons in conclusion, four reasons why we should take the Bible seriously. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees, okay? So number one, number one, where the scriptures have been planted, charity and compassion have emerged. Where the scriptures have been planted, Charity and compassion have emerged. Jesus said, what you have done for the least of these, you've done for me. Orphanages, created by Christians. Homes for the aged, hospitals, rescue missions, soup kitchens, started by Christians. Salvation Army, the YMCA, started by Christians. Countless compassion ministries and outreach opportunities were birthed because people took the words of Jesus seriously, because people took the words of this book seriously. Jesus gave his life for the poor in the spirit, and so do we, right? Well, I'm a kind of a skeptic about all this thing. Why should I believe the Bible? Because where this book is, charity comes. Where this book is, compassion rules. We're not just here to yell at people in the streets. No, we're here to enter into their walk, right? We're here to live by them. We're here to help them. We're here to interact with them. Where the scriptures have been planted, charity and compassion have emerged. One of the heartbreaking things for me over the past couple of months has been watching our country go through everything that it's gone through. And I fear at times that Christians, we've gotten sucked in. And we've left being people of the book and planting scriptures in our hearts, and we become people of a political party. Or we become people of a conservative platform, a liberal, liberal platform. We have to understand the fruit of someone whose the scriptures are planted in their hearts is charity and compassion. It means when someone else is hurting, I'm hurting. 
and I'm going to interact with them. I'm going to help them. I'm going to pray with them. I'm going to support them. Now, I don't always, I can have a thousand different political opinions. If I gave you all my political opinions, I would offend every person in this room because I've got different laws on everything, right? We've all got differences in all those things. But where scripture is planted, what's the fruit? Charity and compassion, okay? Second reason, where the scriptures have been planted, education has resulted. Education has resulted, okay? So we talk about the YMCA. We talk about, you know, the Red Cross. We talk about these things, Salvation Army. Let me ask you this. Who do you think started Harvard? Who do you think started Princeton? Who do you think started Yale? All of these educational institutions were started by Christians. Harvard is named after a Christian pastor. You look at the crest of Princeton University, it's written in Latin. It says, under God, she flourishes. Princeton. Christians have always led the way in education. It was Christians who started a vast amount of the schools we have in our world today. Because the Christian worldview, where scripture is planted in our hearts, the Christian worldview presents that every person is important to God. Who is the first people that said, hey, girls, you can go to school with boys? Christians. We led the charge on those things. We, the education is a result of scriptural understanding, okay? Education is a natural byproduct of believing in a world of order, of believing in a world that is measurable, that is predictable. Christian, loving God and having scripture should not make us reject science. It should make us want to learn more of it. Like, understand this world that God has created. Understand what God has designed this body to do and to be. Understand how our world functions. God made our world a, a world of order, and it makes us want to learn more of him. There are churches you can go to, which sadly they tell you when you come here, check your mind at the door. You, you come here, we come here to think. Yes, we come here to worship. Yes, we come here to emote. Yes, we come here to give our hearts over to God. But yes, we, we also come here to think. And I hope that as we approach God's word, that it promotes in our hearts and prompts in our hearts a desire to know more of him, know more of the people that are made in his image. Where the Bible has been planted, the academy has grown and flourished. So why should I believe the Bible? Where the scriptures have been planted, charity and compassion come. Where the scriptures have been planted, education has resulted. Secondly, thirdly, sorry. Where the scriptures have been planted, freedom was born. Freedom has been born. Um, every four years, we see the inauguration, okay, or the transfer of power, the peaceful transfer of power, which hopefully we'll continue to see in all the years to come. Who knows what's going on in our world right now? But um, you know, the transfer of power from one to another. And it's this beautiful picture of democracy. It's this impressive view of freedom and democracy of mankind. A nation where there is freedom and every person has a chance to pursue, pursue their destiny, that's a, that's a nation that's been founded on the principles of Scripture. You compare that to the caste system in India, where if you're born poor, or if you're born an untouchable, your only hope is to scrub the streets and clean toilets until you die and come back as a better person with more money. Where's the hope in that, right? Where's the freedom in that? No, where scriptures have been planted, there's freedom. Where the scriptures have been planted, democracy has largely run free. The truth sets us free. Our country was founded upon these principles. You can read our founding documents, and it reads almost like the Bible, right? This is, this is scripture that influenced these things. Why, why do you think God has blessed for the majority of our nation, right, for us to have this freedom, for us to have this liberty? Because it's where scripture was planted. We leave that, we lose that. Where the scriptures have been planted, charity and compassion have emerged. Thirdly, secondly, I'm going to get my numbers right here eventually. Where the scriptures have been planted, education has resulted. Thirdly, where the scriptures have been planted, democracy and freedom have been born. Then lastly, and most importantly, where the scriptures have been planted, lives have been changed by the power of God. Some people say the Bible's out of touch. 
And I, I would just love for them to walk through the doors of New Hope on an average day or week. What they're going to find is daily in 2020, people's lives being changed by the power of this book. 2,000 years later, people are finding hope in this book. And you look at all that's going on in our world right now with the, the disagreement on the you know, the, 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 racist, the racism protests versus is the privilege versus prejudice, all of this, the thousand different things. I'll let you develop your own, you know, worldview on. I just know that we're supposed to be compassionate. We're supposed to, we're supposed to be empathetic. We're supposed to take a stand for those who cannot take a stand for themselves. We can read between the lines on where we can all stand on those things while also being compassionate and friendly towards other people, okay? Um, that wasn't in my notes. That just came out quickly, okay? But just be compassionate. No one, no one, out of all the people in the world, what they don't need to hear right now is our opinion. Okay? We have some things we can stand on. So stand on those and stop entering into conversations that we don't really know much about and spouting out our opinion. Okay, So stand on what, what's true. Um, there's a man, Okay, you look at Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1960s who watched white, southern, church-going people. Okay, My people, southern, yeehaw, right? sweet Jesus. Um, my people, Okay, going to church on Sunday and on Monday not being willing to drink out of the same water fountain as him. Okay, there's nothing more antithetical to the gospel than that, right? He watches that, and what, what could he have done? Well, they could have outright rejected Christianity and said, if that's what Christians are like, right, then I want nothing to do with that. You know what he chose to do, what most chose to do? To actually live out what the Bible actually preached. Martin Luther King Jr. quoted over and over again Amos 5, right? Let justice roll on like a river, like righteousness, like a never-ending stream. Hatred Racism is not defeated by the abandonment of Scripture. Racism or hatred is defeated by the insistence of the application of Scripture. The answer is here. We've just got to insist on people and us as Christians primarily leading the way and applying this to our lives. We've got to live it out. At the heart of Christianity, you're going to find something that's not in these other books. It's not in the Book of Mormon. It's not in the Quran. It's not in the Apocrypha, okay? You find at the heart of this book a man who is willing to give his life to advance the life of others. This isn't about rules. This isn't about anger or laws. This book is about mercy and love and forgiveness. That while he is being nailed to a cross, he looks out on his murderers and those who are mocking him and ridiculing him, the same people that he created. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't die hidden in a cave somewhere. No, he dies on a cross in front of the world with a soft heart towards those who hate him. That's the message of this book. This was not natural selection. You know, the strongest survive, right? I don't know. The strongest dies for the weak. That's the story of this book. And in every place where this message is planted, let me tell you what happens. Love grows like a beanstalk from Jack the Beanstalk. Jack and the Beanstalk? Jack the Beanstalk. The Beanstalk, all right? The big beanstalk. You guys get what I'm talking about. I think it's Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack, right? It's Jack, all right? I've been preaching to a camera for like three months now, so your face is here pleasant, but scary. No, but um, in the nicest way, I can mean that. No. Wherever the scriptures have been planted, what results? Love results. So I was a little frustrated when I, like, I finally felt I was like, okay, the Lord's telling me we need to start having in-person services again. And I started looking out at my sermon planning and seeing where I'm going to land, and it's Jude 9. 
And to be honest, I was a little mad. I was like, man, I, this is a great Sunday. This is an important Sunday. Why June 9, right? Like, should I just take a break and preach John 3, 16 or something? Like, where, where should we? And then the Lord just told me, no, we're going to be people in a place where the scriptures are planted. And that means all of them. That means all of them, where the scriptures have been planted. And I hope that today for us as a church family is just a recommitment to be who we are. You can go a lot of places in town and get a better show especially now that I'm singing halfway through the music and doing whatever I'm doing up here, right? There's a lot of places you can find a better show. There's a lot of places you can find better ministries and things that, that go on here. Our church has never been about those things. Okay, when we came here, we're at 456 Birch Park Road, upstairs, an insurance office, 650 square feet. And what do we do? We preach the Bible, right? That's what our church has always been about. And then we moved to an off-track bedding facility, right? What do we do there? We preach the Bible. And now God has given us this good gift, right? What a blessing that he has given us. What are we going to do? We're going to preach the Bible. Our goal is to be people of this book, and we are. our goal is to be a place where love grows because scriptures are being planted here, where people learn and are educated, where our children grow, not just to love God passionately, but to understand him and to understand and grow and memorize his word, right? Because that's what happens where scriptures are planted. And I pray that our, my prayer this morning is that it's a recommitment in our heart of why we exist as a church. We're not here just to give people another option or a nice thing to do on Sunday morning. No, we're, we're people of this book. And hopefully you understand a little bit more as I'm done on why we believe it, okay? Why do we reject these other things? Why do, why do we say God isn't still speaking in other forms? No, this is the completed canon of scripture. This is what we have been given. This is what we have to stand on. And where this has been planted, lives will be forever changed. And our prayer is, that continues to be the results of our ministry here. Would you have a word of prayer with me?